Kajala Medical presents COVID-19 The Answers, the show that delivers the scientific evidence-based knowledge that can safely return us all to our pre-COVID lives. My name is Dr. Fumi Okanola, and I'll be hosting the show. Every week, you can listen to me interview a highly respected professional about the science that can reduce your risk of becoming infected with this coronavirus. If you scroll down to the bottom of the podcast section of my website, kajalamedical.com forward slash COVID-19 The Answers, you will see the diagram for the 360 degree solution to pandemic control. This solution illustrates the risk reduction measures that we need to put in place working collectively to manage this pandemic, future pandemics, and to live with the coronavirus safely. Today, we are looking at a real-life scenario of how the 360-degree solution to pandemic control can really work. Following on from Professor David Harris in Episode 8, Part 2, President Robert C. Robbins of the University of Arizona will talk about the mitigation methods they enacted to combat transmission of COVID-19 on the university campus and illustrate the medical, societal and business case for doing so. Hello and welcome to COVID-19 The Answers, Episode 13, The Business Case for Pandemic Mitigation. Today, I'd like to introduce you all to Dr. Robert C. Robbins, the president of the University of Arizona in Tucson, USA. Dr. Robbins assumed his position as the 22nd president of the University of Arizona on the 1st of June, 2017. Dr. Robbins served as professor and chairman of the Department of Cardiothoracic Surgery at Stanford University School of Medicine, was founding director of the Stanford Cardiovascular Institute, president of the International Society of Heart and Lung Transplantation, and president of the American Heart Association Southwest Affiliate in 2016. Dr. Robbins is an internationally recognized heart surgeon. His medical education consists of a BSc in chemistry from Millsaps College, a medical degree and general surgical training at the University of Mississippi, cardiothoracic training at Stanford University, postdoctoral research at Columbia University and the National Institutes of Health, and congenital heart surgical fellowships at Emory University and Royal Children's Hospital. In addition to his role at the University of Arizona, Dr. Robbins serves on the boards of the Arizona Commerce Authority, Southern Arizona Leadership Council, Tucson Metro's Chamber of Commerce, United Way of Tucson and Southern Arizona, and the Greater Phoenix Economic Council. Welcome. Thank you. So I'm going to move on straight to um, our questions as um, President Robbins has a limited amount of time with us today. So on March the 11th, 2020, the World Health Organization declared the novel coronavirus COVID-19 outbreak a global pandemic. The University of Arizona was then shut down, staff were laid off, others were furloughed, salaries were cut, and the university faced a precarious financial future. Professor David Harris, an immunologist and the executive director of the University of Arizona Biorepository, got together with colleagues at the university to devise a test, trace, treat strategy, a form of high throughput screening, mainly by rapid testing and incorporating the saliva direct PCR protocol for staff and students. 
This was fully implemented from August 2020, and by May 2021, the university went from 45,000 students and 20,000 staff forced to work online to the resumption of in-person classes with 100 people in attendance per classroom within seven months. You can hear about the Saliva Direct PCR in Episode 7 and about this whole story in Episode 8, Part 2. Today, we're interviewing Dr. Robert Robbins, the president of the University of Arizona, about the business case for COVID-19 pandemic mitigation. President Robbins, at the time of your plan, the university was exploring a path that had not been travelled before. Could you tell us about the reasoning behind your full support of the test, trace, treat strategy? Well, I think uh, your timeline is... uh reminds me of all that we were going through. Things were moving very quickly. Uh, But for me, because of my background, particularly doing heart and lung transplant surgery and immunosuppressing uh, patients for over 35 years, it it seemed to be something that I was comfortable dealing with. And I knew that we had to, uh, first of all, test as much as possible. And we're out in the middle of the desert in Arizona. Uh, a long way away from Washington, D.C. and the supply chain to get us testing kits. So we went about devising our own test kits. And then, of course, contact tracing and then the treatment phase of our uh, test, trace and treat 3T protocol was to isolate uh, individuals that tested positive and and then uh, find the individuals that contact traced and get them isolated as well. And I would argue it it worked out really well for us. We also had a very sensitive and specific uh, antibody test that was developed and validated in an international lab uh, for the most accurate antibody test for COVID-19. And that's been instructive during our two-year journey. But it was easy for me because I knew that the pathway to getting the university back in business was to to do all of these things. Uh, I would just add a a footnote that we had, uh, we're the number one water resource program in the world, number one in the world. And we've got uh, an individual named Ian Pepper, Dr. Ian Pepper. I often say Dr. Pepper is so misunderstood, but Ian has been uh, looking in, water supplies uh, in Europe primarily for over two decades looking for polio in public water supplies. And he came and said, I think I can find COVID in wastewater. And it was known that um, COVID was excreted uh, from the GI tract into the wastewater effluent. And, And it happens before anyone who's in that building even has a symptom. So we utilize that as a mitigation strategy as well. I had no idea that you were one of the first um, organizations to identify um, SARS-CoV-2 in wastewater. That Correct. is truly amazing. I knew that you utilized that technology, but I didn't know that you were leading in it. So thank you for educating me about that. That's amazing. Yeah, you, you, wanna, you wanna interview Dr. Pepper on one of your episodes. 
Well, maybe so. Uh, um, I, I do have some people lined up for wa- for a wastewater interview, oh. but that could well be a bonus episode because I'd be very interested to talk to him and see um, his pioneering technology with regards to that. So um, the test te- trace treat strategy has cost the university millions of dollars. You are an MD. We're not traditionally known for our business acumen. How did you construct a cost-benefit analysis to support this process? And what were your key fundamental assumptions in the modeling? Well, I knew that, um, as I said at the outset, it was the right public health thing to do. And if you think of the university community, which is is not an isolated uh, uh, bubble, but if you if you think about what we had control of, then obviously for the students, the faculty and the staff at the university, we needed to do uh, very aggressive testing and uh, contact tracing and and isolation to be able to deal with this massive public health uh, emergency. The other thing that we did was we were very fortunate to have Dr. Richard Carmona, the 17th Surgeon General of the United States, Uh, on our faculty for 35 years. Uh, He was one of the founding members of our incredibly uh, 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 gifted and recognized School of Public Health. So I asked Dr. Carmona if he would help lead the effort as the uh, COVID uh, uh, czar, if you will. And he drew upon his time as uh, Surgeon General when uh, President Bush, 43, uh, deployed him to to New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina uh, to assess uh, the medical health going on in New Orleans. And he called back and said, the hospitals are flooded up to the second floor. We need to move the patients out of the hospitals. And oh, by the way, uh, we need to move all the people uh, out of these uh, temporary conditions somewhere else. And he led the uh, relocation of 300,000 people from New Orleans to Houston, Texas, the largest mass uh, movement and migration of people in the in the uh, country's history. Now, many of those people stayed in Houston uh, because they had a great life there, but a lot came back to New Orleans. But we had Dr. Carmona is, is really our ace in the hole, and he instituted an incident command system here that's used for all hazards in the federal government. I really wasn't (laughs) that knowledgeable about an incident command system. And the faculty and the administration thought, what what is this militaristic approach to this, uh, you know, this virus that's going to give us the flu? But it became very obvious quickly that this was a very lethal, deadly virus, and we needed drastic measures. And so Dr. Carmona really helped us get organized through an incident command system. That is absolutely amazing. You have the amongst the best minds on the planet. That really explains a lot, actually. This is a fantastic interview. Um, raising capital is never easy, and I suspect particularly difficult given the groundbreaking path you were asking the capital to support. What was your process for raising the capital and what capital profile, for example, alumni, non-alumni, private government came to the table? Well, I think mostly we used our own operating uh, budget at the university. 
uh, to fund most of these uh, initiatives, and, and there were a lot. Um, there were mitigation efforts about around uh, using uh, higher filtration systems in all of our buildings, cleaning supplies, uh, isolation dormitories that we had to set up, all of the supplies for testing, because to take this on and test ourselves, we did this at no cost to any of our faculty, staff, and students. So uh, we utilized primarily internal operating uh, budget monies and uh, the little bit of reserve that we had uh, at the university. But the federal government, obviously through the CARES Act, provided a lot of funds because we thought that if we invested on the front end, um, it was gonna be very important for us to, to have safety first for our university community. And we would figure the finances out later. We, we thought rightfully so that the federal government would supply some funding and certainly the state government uh, and Governor Ducey and the Department of Health and uh, Human Services provided uh, some support for our antibody tests and we provided antibody testing throughout the state, including uh, some of the, uh, uh, the prison system as well. So it was a combination of uh, all. Uh, we got a little bit of donor money to help us out, but primarily it was our internal operating budget. Wow. I've spoken to Dr. David Harris on quite a few occasions. He talks about the fantastic leadership and support that he and his colleagues at the university received from you. You have a whole host of world-class intelligence with regards to university personnel. What aspects of your own character and leadership did you draw on to make the whole project successful? Well, I think I was uh, uh, smart enough to realize that this was going to take a huge uh, team effort and that there were individuals who were infinitely more knowledgeable about how to deal with a public health crisis. And so that's why I went directly to Dr. Carmona, Dr. Harris, um, Dr. Mike Dake, who is the Senior Vice President for Health Affairs. Uh, I can remember the first person I called was the Dean of the Medical School, uh, Dr. Michael Abacasas, who is a world-renowned transplant surgeon, uh, liver, uh, kidney, and pancreas. Uh, he spent most of his career at Northwestern University, and he had only been at the University of Arizona for about a year as the dean. It turns out that his master's, his master's thesis was on coronavirus. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So he'd studied coronavirus and wrote a thesis on coronavirus. So he obviously knew a lot more than me. Uh, obviously, I'd been through SARS and MERS, uh, but I, I, had, I didn't have the capability um, uh, to deal with this. And it, and it took all hands on deck. It took our students. It took our IT department, our faculty. Uh, our staff. Uh, so I knew it needed to be a team effort. And, and so I think I drew upon my days as a heart surgeon where you could do a technically perfect heart operation, but if you're anesthesiologist, your perfusionist, your nurse, your respiratory therapist, physical therapist, pharmacist, uh, were not uh, on top of their game, then the patient was going to suffer. So I knew it needed to be multidisciplinary and all hands on deck. And so we, we ask everyone to, um, to pitch in and 
you know, it was going to take all of us working together. And, and I'm proud to say that's exactly what happened. That's wonderful. So you drew on your experiences and attributes as a doctor um, uh, to, to sort of lead the university out of, out of the pandemic. That's amazing. Well, you, you well know that it's a, it's a team, team activity. Yes. Medicine is a team activity. And, and that's one of the things I really like about how we educate our pharmacy, nursing, public health students and uh, physicians is in that team based approach. Very true. And the best doctors know that. So can you talk about how you involve the wider community of Tucson into the project and why this was important? Well, it was important because, as I was referencing earlier, we don't live in an isolated bubble. We, we live in a very porous uh, uh, membrane that has our students, our faculty, and our staff going in and out of the university into the community. So it was important for us um, early on to establish good relationships with the mayor, the city council, uh, the county uh, administrators, the board of supervisors, and absolutely the uh, health department. And so we, we worked with the health department on a variety of uh, different mitigation uh, strategies and then ultimately treatment strategies when, when we uh, became a pod, a vaccination pod, first as a, uh, as a county pod and then at a state level. And we vaccinated over 240,000 people in Southern Arizona. So it was very much in line with our, with our land grant mission to serve the community that we opened our resources up and, and had a vaccination pod that was running seven days a week, usually 12 to 14 hours a day. That is just fantastic. I believe we need more than vaccination to get us out of this pandemic and have proposed that we follow a 360 degree solution to pandemic control. I'm just gonna share the screen with you briefly um, so that I can show you a slide. So can you see this slide? Yes. So, um, so basically, the University of Arizona has facilitated, has, has done 80 to 90% of, of, of what I said we need to get safely out of the pandemic. I think at the moment we're living dangerously, um, uh, sort of globally. So the regulator support and finance is you, your testing strategy you implemented, your wastewater monitoring, the infrastructure you educated, um, your students, your staff, the wider population of uh, Tucson. Um, you supported um, people with isolation. You had IT contact tracing, tracing and you implemented um, air filtration and the most important of all, vaccination. So you've done virtually everything. And I think that's why you're now nearly back to, well, you're back to normal, aren't you, um, at the University of Arizona? We are. Um, I, I, am, I am concerned that there's another wave coming. So, uh, for instance, we've kept our... Uh, public health advisory team together. We've kept our ICS uh, incident command system together because I, I would like to get through the summer to see if BA2 is going to uh, have a big outbreak in Southern Arizona uh, like it did on the East Coast. And I'd like to get another truly, quote, normal, uh, disease-free semester under our belts before we declare mission accomplished. 
That's, you know, that's true humility. And yes, you're very right. The pandemic is still raging on. It's not over. Um, but this whole interview is, is, is about, it's kind of a second part to the, the interview with Dr. Harris. It showed how successful you've been. I think you've really set a blueprint for the planet on how we should manage this pandemic safely. What do you see as the long-term or ongoing benefits from the pandemic risk reduction infrastructure that you set up at the University of Arizona? for the university and possibly beyond? Well, I think that uh, future pandemics, and of course there will be, hopefully not anything as big as there was in 1918 or uh, in 2020. Um, But I I think it's also an esprit de corps of of the whole university community and the the outside community coming together, uh, showing that we can work together and it's important to do so. But I think early warning and early detection uh, of future pandemics is going to be critically important, not to mention the long-term study of what happens to patients with COVID, the so-called long COVID. But in terms of being prepared for the next pandemic, I think we'll have a blueprint. We'll know how to do it. Um, it's interesting that our, our university clinic uh, which is is ranked uh, perennially in the top five university uh, student health centers in the U.S. Uh, was started in the 1918 pandemic. So it's uh, it, it celebrated a hundred year anniversary just uh, a couple of years ago, and so I I think that we've learned a lot, uh, and all of that will be codified and captured for those people who come after us who have to face. Uh, hopefully not as devastating a pandemic, but it could be even worse. Well, what a fantastic university. I mean, you've set a real example. You have an amazing ethos dating right back to the early part of the 20th century. And you as president have continued with that. And I really must, you know, champion you um, for what you've done there. So um, my final question is, would you like to leave the audience with any lasting thoughts of the importance of reducing the risk of infection from coronavirus in all our lives? And what thoughts do you have on a universal uh, worldwide application of your fantastic results? Well, I think that the fundamental uh, approaches that we took, which was the, which was the uh, test, trace and treat uh, protocol, also included many other things, which are very basic things. Uh, Washing your hands, we know this is a respiratory virus, face coverings and distancing from other people. Just those simple things along with a vaccination would get us 90% of the way. Obviously the most vulnerable population among us are the ones we have to focus on uh, continuously now. Uh, Those are the less fortunate, marginalized populations, and also the elderly and immunocompromised uh, people that have immunodeficiency disorders being treated for cancer or or other high-risk categories. But I think um, early warning and detection systems in the future and not waiting, not politicizing this, going straight to the Uh, The science and the data that we know will help people and save lives, I think, is the biggest lesson to to learn. I'm not sure how to to eliminate the political uh, issues uh, that were involved here. 
but it's it's really disappointing. And I'm hoping that the next time it won't be so politicized. So the title of this podcast is about the business case. And 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 what you've just said is 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 you know definitely the reasoning. But how is how has has the university implementing all these things? Because I'm constantly saying we need air filtration, we need ventilation, we need testing, and people keep going on about the costs. Can you tell me the the business case for for doing all of this? Yeah, the business case was very simple. If we couldn't run, if we couldn't provide a safe environment for our students, faculty, and staff, we couldn't make money as a university. And it can't, comes down to that simple fact. One of the reasons why we wanted to uh, to to do all of these things it was it was medically the right thing. It was from a public health standpoint, it was the right thing. Um, but it also was the right business decision for us, so that we could get our university open, deliver classes, because um, 40% of the students are from outside Arizona. And that's a high percentage for a state university. And we depend on those students coming here because they pay a higher rate of tuition and fees. So in order for us to attract those students, we had to be open and having in-person classes. So that's the business case for this without question. So doing all of this not only kept the whole community safe, save lives, but also save the help the university to keep generating money. Yes. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, President uh, Robbins, for your participation today. Your achievements at the University of Arizona have set an example that the rest of the world needs to follow. Please join us for next week's episode 14, where I'll be interviewing Galia Wessler about information technology to combat COVID-19. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of COVID-19 The Answers. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review and do visit our website kajalamedical.com forward slash COVID-19 The Answers. 